This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening everybody and a very warm welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Robin Marsak, Director of the Scottish Poetry Library, and it's a huge pleasure to welcome this evening Billy Collins. He was last here eight years ago, that's too long, Billy, <laughs> having recently published the volume he titled provocatively The Trouble with Poetry, and we're delighted to welcome him back. As many of you know, he was Poet Laureate of the USA from 2001 to 2003, and he was Poet Laureate of New York State, 2004 to 2006. Aimless Love is his new and selected poems, which came out last year. Now, if you think, well, I've got some of Billy's books, so maybe I don't need the selected poems, let me tell you, there is a generous helping of 50 new poems in here, and Billy will sign them afterwards, so remember that. Carol Duff Ann Duffy is quoted on the cover as saying, Billy Collins is one of my favourite poets in the world. Well, hundreds and hundreds of readers will agree with her. And if you don't know his work yet, let me assure you that in the next hour, you'll be joining Team Carol Ann Duffy. And if you do know it, you know that you're in for an hour where the ordinary becomes magical, where sly humour surprises, and where the sorrows and the joys of life are given their most graceful shape. Please, a hand for Billy Collins. Thank you very much for that. It's a kind of introduction that you feel the pressure to uh, fulfill the promise of the introduction. So thank you for that. It's great to be here. Great to be back here. And it was, has been too long. Um, I'm going to begin uh, also, um, I don't know if you mentioned this, but I'm going to read for a little while and then uh, I'm going to join Robin and we're going to have a little uh, conversation. And then uh, we're going to ask you to join in if you want to ask some questions and we can uh, broaden the conversation. So think of a question. Um, I'm going to start with a poem that is um, kind of addressed, well, not kind of, but it's addressed to, uh, to you, to the reader, and it's called You, Reader. I wonder how you are going to feel when you find out that I wrote this instead of you, that it was I who got up early to sit in the kitchen and mention with a pen the rain-soaked windows the ivy wallpaper, and the goldfish circling in its bowl. Go ahead and turn aside, bite your lip, and tear out the page. But listen, it was just a matter of time before one of us happened to notice the unlit candles and the clock humming on the wall. Plus, nothing happened that morning. A song on the radio, a car whistling along the road outside. And I was only thinking about the shakers of salt and pepper that were standing side by side on a placemat. I wonder if they had become friends after all these years, or if they were still strangers to one another, like you and I, who managed to be known and unknown to each other at the same time, me at this table with a bowl of pears, you leaning in a doorway somewhere near some blue hydrangeas, 
reading this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And here's a poem I read a while back with uh, the title is Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. <laughs> the neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony, full blast. But I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head <laughs> raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for Barking Dog. <laughs> when the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor, who is entreating him with his baton, while the other music musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous Barking Dog solo, <laughs> that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. <laughs> Thank you. This poem is called 1957. In the old joke, the marriage counselor tells the couple who never talks anymore to go to a jazz club because at a jazz club, everyone talks during the bass solo. <laughs> but of course, no one starts talking just because of a bass solo, or any other solo for that matter. The quieter bass solo just reveals the people in the club who have been talking all along. The same ones you can hear on some well-known recordings. Bill Evans, for example, who is opening a new door on the piano while some guy chats up his date at one of the little tables in the back. I have listened to that album so many times, I can anticipate the moment of his drunken laugh as if it were a strange note in the tune. And so, anonymous man, you have, be part, been part, you have become part of my listening, your romance, a romance lost in the past, and a reminder somehow that each member of that trio has died since then, and maybe so have you, and sadly, maybe she. Thank you. You'll see uh, uh, soon enough that I'm... Uh, a dog person, but um, at this point, a cat has entered our lives, and um, so I've uh, I've written about her, and uh, the, po the poem is called "Lucky Cat." It's a law as immutable as the ones governing bodies in motion and bodies at rest that a cat picked up will never stay in the place where you choose to set it down. I bet you'd be happy on the sofa, or this hassock, or this knitted throw pillow are a few examples of bets you are bound to lose. The secret of winning I have found is never to bet against the cat, 
but on the cat, preferably with another human being who, unlike the cat, is likely to be carrying money. <laughs> and I cannot think of a better time to thank our cat for her obedience to that law, thus turning me into a consistent winner. She's a pure black one, quite impossible to photograph, and prone to disappearing into the night or even the thin shadows of noon. Such an amorphous blob of blackness is she. The only way to tell she is approaching is to notice the two little yellow circles of her eyes, then only one circle when she is walking away with her tail raised high. <laughs> Something like the lantern signals of Paul Revere and another opportunity for a sure thing. Um, read a couple of short poems. This is uh, just uh, nine lines long, and uh, it's called Irish Spider. It was well worth traveling this far just to sit in a box of sunlight by a window in a cottage with a cup of steaming tea and to watch an Irish spider waiting at the center of his dewy web, pretending to be just any spider at all a spider without a nation, but not fooling me for a minute. <laughs> and I have a, and this is quite about the same size poem, and it's called A Note to Thomas Stearns Eliot, <clears throat> Note to T.S. Eliot. I just dared to eat a really big peach, <laughs> as ripe as it could be, and I have on a pair of plaid shorts and a blue t-shirt with a hole in it and little rivers of juice are running down my chin now and dripping onto the pool deck. What is your problem, man? <laughs> I've always wanted to talk back to him a little bit, uh, having studied him so hard. And this is uh, six lines long. I've always been, well, not always, but I was just struck by the, at one point, I mean, we hear these expressions all the time, and then suddenly they seem very strange, the expression, the naked eye. You never hear anyone say, you, you know, people don't say, you know, you, you couldn't smell it with the naked nose. Um, so it's just a little reflection on the naked eye. There was no lid to clothe the naked eye. So she covered herself with some scenery, a meadow she liked to look at when the other eye wasn't looking. I don't know what that is all about, but that's... Also very short, um, and uh, pretty much I wrote down something just as it happened. Uh, uh, as they say, a true story. Uh, it's called Feedback. The woman who wrote from Phoenix after my reading there to tell me they were all still talking about it just wrote again to tell me that they had stopped. <laughs> Talk about passive aggression. So a few poems from uh, 
from this book, Aimless Love. <clears throat> and um, here's a poem uh, based on a uh, um, migratory uh, bird phenomenon that happens uh, in America every year. It's called the Sandhill Cranes of Nebraska. Too bad you weren't here six months ago, was a lament I heard on my visit to Nebraska. You could have seen the astonishing spectacle of the sandhill cranes, thousands of, of them feeding and even dancing on the shores of the Platte River. There was no point in pointing out the impossibility of my being there then because I happened to be somewhere else. So I nodded and put on a look of mild disappointment, if only to be part of the commiseration. It was the same look I remember wearing about six months ago in Georgia when I was told that I had just missed the spectacular annual outburst of azaleas, brilliant against the green backdrop of spring. And the same in Vermont six months before that, when I arrived shortly after the magnificent foliage had gloriously peaked, Mother Nature, as she is called, having touched the hills with her many-colored brush, a phenomenon that occurs, like the others, around the same time every year, when I am apparently off in another state, <laughs> stuck in a motel lobby with the local paper and a styrofoam cup of coffee, busily missing God knows what. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the little uh, secret behind that poem is uh, I couldn't have written that were it not for a for former uh, poet laureate, great, a wonderful American poet, Howard Nemiroff, <clears throat> not because of one of his poems, which I love, but um, he, uh, uh, along with a lot of other writers, uh, made up a word. We were all, a bunch of us were asked to make up a new word, and not to be funny about it, but to find a legitimate uh, blank in the language and to find a word that would fill it. And he came up with the verb... Uh, the transitive verb to azaleate. <laughs> and to azaleate means to commiserate needlessly with some visitor about a natural phenomenon <clears throat> that they just miss because they arrive too late <laughs> or they will miss because they're leaving too early. <clears throat> so you have probably been azaleated and azaleated yourself, but now you have a word for it. Do <clears throat> you know Howard Nemiroff's two-line poem that I love? It's called, it's called Bacon and Eggs. The chicken, I'm sorry. Yeah, Bacon and Eggs. The chicken contributes, but the pig gives his all. <laughs> <clears throat> Sometimes, uh, I mean, it's very uh, common uh, of poets to... Uh, you know, just talk, talk back to other poets, sort of the way I was sassing uh, T.S. Eliot there. But also, um, there are kind of uh, honorific poems that are written um, a as a version of a previous poem. Uh, and I wanted to write a poem, kind of my version of a beautiful poem by the Chinese poet Li Po. And his poem is called Drinking Alone. So... Uh, I followed the usual protocol. I wrote drinking alone on a piece of paper. And then I did what you're supposed to do, which is to write after Lee Poe, like you'd say after Emily Dickinson or Patrick Kavanaugh or whatever. Um, 
And then I didn't know what to do, so I just kept staring at drinking alone after Li Po, and this is what happened. Drinking alone after Li Po. This is not after Li Po, the way the state is after me for neglecting to pay all my taxes, <laughs> nor the way I am after the woman in front of me on the long line at the post office. Li Po, I am not saying after you as I stand holding open one of the heavy glass doors that divide the centuries in a long corridor of glass doors. No, the only way this is after you is in the way they say, it's just one thing after another, like the way I will pause to raise a glass of wine to you after I finish writing this poem. So let me get back to sitting in the wind alone among the pines with a pencil in my hand. After all, you had your turn, and mine will soon be done. Then someone else will sit here after me. Well, they say poems are just lying all around us, and we just have to to look for them, to find them. And this one occurred under pretty ordinary circumstances. Uh, it's a po poem called Cheerios. One bright morning in a restaurant in Chicago, as I waited for my eggs and toast, I opened the Tribune only to discover that I was the same age as Cheerios. <laughs> Indeed, I was a few months older than Cheerios for today the newspaper announced was the 70th birthday of Cheerios, whereas mine had occurred earlier in the year. Already I could hear them whispering behind my stooped and threadbare back, why that dude's older than Cheerios. <laughs> the way they used to say, why that's as old as the hills. Only the hills are much older than Cheerios or any American breakfast cereal. And more noble and enduring are the hills, I surmised, as a bar of sunlight illuminated my orange juice. Thank you. Um, well, here's a poem about adolescence, which is a, uh, one of these big subjects. Um, adolescence uh, was invented in 1955. Uh, before that, people just, there was not this long period between childhood and adulthood. It would happen kind of suddenly. Uh, or they just acted silly for a while, then someone slapped them around, they became adults. <laughs> I don't know. But, but now, with the, help of, uh, with the help of graduate studies, you can extend this into your, <laughs> into your 30s, at least. Um, so the poem addresses one particular example of adolescence, who is right in the heart of it. And it's called, To My Favorite 17-Year-Old High School Girl. Do you realize that if you had started building the Parthenon on the day you were born, you would be all done in only one more year? Of course, you couldn't have done that all alone, so never mind. You're fine just as you are. You are loved for simply being yourself. But did you know that at your age, Judy Garland was pulling down $150,000 a picture 
Joan of Arc was leading the French army to victory, and Blaise Pascal had cleaned up his room. No, wait, I mean he had invented the calculator. Of course, there will be time for all that later in your life, after you come out of your room and begin to blossom, or at least pick up all your socks. For some reason, I keep remembering that Lady Jane Grey was Queen of England when she was only 15, but then she was beheaded, so never mind her as a role model. <laughs> but a few centuries later, when he was your age, Franz Schubert was doing the dishes for his family, but that did not keep him from composing two symphonies, four operas, and two complete masses as a youngster. But of course, that was in Austria at the height of romantic lyricism, not here in the suburbs of Cleveland. Frankly, who cares if Annie Oakley was a crack shot at 15 or if Maria Callas debuted as Tosca at 17? We think you are special by just being you, playing with your food and staring into space. <laughs> but by the way, I lied about Schubert doing the dishes, but that doesn't mean he never helped out around the house. Thank you. You're supposed to say, bless her heart after. <laughs> so bless her heart. Okay, so I admitted that uh, the cat was kind of an interruption of my love of dogs. So let me read a, a little uh, t a 12 line poem and uh, it's spoken by a dog or, or thought by a dog, a little uh, doggy soliloquy. And the dog is um, very sensitively considering an aspect of his relationship with his uh, owner. And it's called A Dog on His Master. As young as I look, I am growing older faster than he. Seven to one is the ratio they tend to say. Whatever the number, I will pass him one day and take the lead the way I do on our walks in the woods. And if this ever manages to cross his mind, it would be the sweetest shadow I have ever cast on snow or grass. Yeah, that's a very sensitive dog. Um, well, here's a less sensitive dog. <laughs> um, this is hard to write poems about dogs or cats, I guess, because they're just, uh, they fall into, uh, they lose ironic traction and they slip into sentimentality if you're not careful. So I wanted to write a poem uh, about a dog that was uh, quite uh, free of that. And it's called The Revenant. Revenant is a ghost that comes back to see you. The Revenant. I am the dog you put to sleep, as you like to call the needle of oblivion. Come back to tell you this simple thing. I never liked you. <laughs> when I licked your face, I thought of biting off your nose. When I watched you toweling yourself dry, I wanted to leap and unman you with a snap. <laughs> I resented the way you moved, your lack of animal grace, the way you would sit in a chair to eat, 
a napkin on your lap, a knife in your hand. I would have run away, but I was too weak. A trick you taught me while I was learning to sit and heal and greatest of insults, shake hands without a hand. I admit the sight of the leash would excite me, but only because it meant I was about to smell things you had never touched. You do not want to believe this, but I have no reason to lie. I hated the car, hated the rubber toys, disliked your friends and worse, your relatives. The jingling of my tags drove me mad. You always scratch me in the wrong place. <laughs> All I ever wanted from you was food and water in my metal bowls. While you slept, I watched you breathe as the moon rose in the sky. It took all of my strength not to raise my head and howl. Now I am free of the collar, free of the yellow raincoat, monogram sweater, the absurdity of your lawn. And that is all you need to know about this place, except what you already supposed and are glad it did not happen sooner, that everyone here can read and write. The dogs in poetry, the cats and all the others in prose. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Well, here's a couple of, uh, just go back to a couple of short poems. Um, <clears throat> Four-line poem uh, that's completely dependent for sense on its title, and the title is Divorce. Divorce. Once, two spoons in bed. Now, tying forks across a granite table and the knives they have hired. Yeah, there's no need to applaud. <laughs> yeah, right. Just, just make an awful sound. Um, I hear this on the streets here as, as much as I do in... <clears throat> in America, in the States. Um, and it, uh, I try to react to it with this uh, little nine-line poem uh, titled, Oh My God, uh, with an exclamation point. Very naive speaker, you'll see. Oh My God. Not only in church and nightly by their bedsides do young girls pray these days. Wherever they go, Prayer is woven into their talk like a bright thread of awe. Even at the pedestrian mall, outbursts of praise spring unbidden from their glossy lips. Yeah. Here's a poem about music and silence, I guess. I mentioned Monk in the first line. I mean Thelonious Monk, of course. And the poem is called Snow. I cannot help noticing how this slow monk solo seems to go somehow with the snow that is coming down this morning. How the notes and the spaces accompany its easy falling on the geometry of the ground, on the flagstone path, the slanted roof, and the angles of the split rail fence, 
as if he had imagined a winter scene as he sat at the piano late one night at the five spot playing Ruby, my dear. Then again, it's the kind of song that would go easily with rain or a tumult of leaves. And for that matter, it's a snow that could attend an adagio for strings, the best of the Ronettes, or even George Thorogood and the Destroyers. It falls so indifferently into the spacious white parlor of the world. If I were sitting here reading in silence, reading the morning paper or reading Being in Nothingness, not even letting the spoon touch the inside of the cup, I have a feeling the snow would go perfectly with that. Um, here's a kind of takeoff on a love poem. Um, like any uh, genre of poetry, uh, love poetry uh, collects, gathers uh, conventions along the way. And one convention that uh, began at least as early as the Italian Middle Ages is the, is the, uh, the convention of comparing the beloved to... Uh, well, to things, mostly uh, it, with the idea of flattering her, uh, things in nature usually, as if these male poets knew what women wanted. Remember Freud's rather insulting question, what do women want? Well, these poets assumed that women wanted, well, not passion, not fidelity, not respect, not equality. Women wanted similes. That <laughs> they... they Metaphors drove them crazy. <laughs> so uh, I came across a poem a while back, um, which was nothing but about 40 lines of these comparisons. And by the way, when Shakespeare wrote, my, my mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun, you, you think that would have put the brakes on it, slightly at least, but it continues unabated. Um, so I was reacting to that convention through this particular poem. And in the poem, the poet starts out by the, with these comparisons. He says to her, you are the bread and the knife, the crystal goblet and the wine. And I use his first two lines to start the poem, or restart his poem, if you will. And my poem is called Litany. You are the bread and the knife, the crystal goblet and the wine. You are the dew on the morning grass and the burning wheel of the sun. You are the white apron of the baker and the marsh birds suddenly in flight. However, you are not the wind in the orchard, the plums on the counter, or the house of cards. And you are certainly not the pine-scented air. There is no way you are the pine-scented air. <laughs> it is possible that you are the fish under the bridge, maybe even the pigeon on the general's head, but you are not even close to being the field of cornflowers at dusk. And a quick look in the mirror will show that you are neither the boots in the corner nor the boat asleep in its boathouse. It might interest you to know, speaking of the plentiful imagery of the world, that I am the sound of rain on the roof. I also happen to be the shooting star, the evening paper blowing down an alley, 
and the basket of chestnuts on the kitchen table. I am also the moon in the trees and the blind woman's teacup. But don't worry, I am not the bread and the knife. You are still the bread and the knife. <laughs> you will always be the bread and the knife, not to mention the crystal goblet and somehow the wine. Thank you. Um, okay, well, here's a curious little poem. I don't know if you know the, the, the drawing of the duck rabbit. Do you know that? Or, or you know a ver another version of it. It's where you, know, you can look at it one way and see a duck and look at it another way and see a rabbit, but you can't look at them both. They keep kind of switching away from you. So it mentions that. And the poem is called Lakeside. As optical illusions go... It was one of the more spectacular. A cluster of bright stars appearing to move across the night sky as if on a secret mission. While, of course, it was the low clouds that were doing the moving, scattered over my head by a wind from the east. And as hard as I looked, I could not get the stars to budge again. It was like the curious figure of the duck rabbit, why even paradoxical Wittgenstein could not find his way back to the rabbit once he had beheld the bill of the duck. But which was which? Were the stars the rabbit and the blown clouds the duck or the other way around? You're being ridiculous, I said to myself on the walk back to the house. But then the correct answer struck me, not like a bolt of lightning, more like a heavy bolt of cloth. <laughs> all right, all right. You, know you wouldn't want to have to teach that poem. Uh, <laughs> um, so here's a, a summertime poem. Um, this happens all over the United States, and I think uh, here too, to some extent. Um, it's a poem. <clears throat> it's a poem called "The Lanyard," and. Uh, I start the poem um, with uh, uh, the scene in which the poem first occurred to me um, and got, got started. The Lanyard. The other day, as I was ricocheting slowly off the pale blue walls of this room, bouncing from typewriter to piano, from bookshelf to an envelope lying on the floor, I found myself in the L section of the dictionary, where my eyes fell upon the word lanyard. No cookie nibbled by a French novelist could send one more suddenly into the past, a past where I sat at a workbench at a camp by a deep Adirondack lake, learning how to braid thin plastic strips into a lanyard, a gift for my mother. I had never seen anyone use a lanyard, or wear one if that's what you did with them, but that did not keep me from crossing strand over strand again and again until I had made a boxy red and white lanyard for my mother. She gave me life and milk from her breasts, and I gave her a lanyard. <laughs> she nursed me in many a sick room, lifted teaspoons of medicine to my lips, set cold face cloths, on my forehead, and then led me out into the airy light 
and taught me to walk and swim, and I in turn presented her with a lanyard. <laughs> here are thousands of meals, she said, and here is clothing and a good education. And here is your lanyard, I replied, <laughs> which I made with a little help from a counselor. <laughs> here is a breathing body and a beating heart, strong legs, bones, and teeth, and two clear eyes to read the world, she whispered. And here I said, as the lanyard I made at camp. And here I wish to say to her now is a smaller gift, not the archaic truth that you can never repay your mother, but the rueful admission that when she took the two-tone lanyard from my hands, I was as sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless thing I wove out of boredom would be enough to make us even. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you so much. We'll just do a couple more poems, then we can have a, a little chat here. Um, poem uh, written some time ago called Forgetfulness, um, but it's, uh, it seems to have an expanding audience. Um, and it's just it's a little meditation on that kind of mental slippage, particularly uh, forgetting uh, what you've read, forgetting books. Forgetfulness. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never read, never even heard of. It, it is as if one by one the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to a little fishing village where there are no phones. Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye, and you watch the quadratic equation pack its bag. <laughs> and even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away, the address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue, not even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L, <laughs> as far as you can recall. Well, on your own way to oblivion, where you will join those who have forgotten even how to swim and how to ride a bicycle. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. I'll read two more poems, and then we'll have a little, a quick, a little chat. Um, um, okay, here's a poem called. Um, with a big title. It's called, I Chopped Some Parsley While Listening to Art Blakey's Version of Three Blind Mice. 
and I start wondering how they came to be blind. If it was congenital, they could be brothers and sisters. And I think of the poor mother brooding over sightless young triplets. Or was it a common accident, all three caught in a searing explosion, a firework perhaps? If not, if each came to his or her blindness separately, how did they ever manage to find one another? <laughs> Would it not be difficult for a blind mouse to locate even one fellow mouse with vision, let alone two other blind ones? And how, in their tiny darkness, could they possibly have run after a farmer's wife? <laughs> or anyone else's wife, for that matter, not to mention why? Just so she could cut off their tails with a carving knife is the cynic's answer. But the thought of them without eyes and now without tails to trail through the moist grass or slip around the corner of a baseboard has the cynic who always lounges within me up off his couch and at the window trying to hide the rising softness that he feels. By now I am on to dicing an onion which might account for the wet stinging in my own eyes, though Freddie Hubbard's mournful trumpet on Blue Moon, which happens to be the next cut, cannot be said to be making matters any better. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, final poem, a uh, poem called uh, Nightclub. And the only one little reference in it to clarify, and you, you probably know this singer, uh, Johnny Hartman, who's a jazz singer, died in the late 70s, and um, has a beautiful, uh, mellow, soulful voice, seemed uh, designed by God to sing uh, jazz ballads, Johnny Hartman. Uh, Nightclub. You are so beautiful, and I am a fool to be in love with you, is a theme that keeps coming up in songs and poems. There seems to be no room for variation. I have never heard anyone sing, I am so beautiful and you are a fool to be in love with me, even though this notion has surely crossed the minds of women and men alike. You are so beautiful, too bad you're a fool is another one you don't hear. Or you are a fool to consider me beautiful. That one you will never hear, guaranteed. For no particular reason, this afternoon, I am listening to Johnny Hartman, whose dark voice can curl around the concepts of love, beauty, and foolishness like no one else's can. It feels like smoke curling up from a cigarette someone left burning on a baby grand piano around three o'clock in the morning, smoke that billows up into the bright lights while out there in the darkness some of the beautiful fools have gathered around little tables to listen, some with their eyes closed, others leaning forward into the music as if it were holding them up, or just twirling the loose ice in a glass, slipping by degrees into a rhythmic dream. Yes, there is all this foolish beauty born beyond midnight that has no desire to go home, especially now when everyone in the room is watching the large man with the tenor sax that hangs from his neck like a golden fish. 
He moves forward to the edge of the stage and hands the instrument down to me and nods that I should play. So I put the mouthpiece to my lips and blow into it with all my living breath. We are all so foolish. My long bebop solo begins by saying, so damn foolish, we have become beautiful without even knowing it. <clears throat> Thank you so much. said there's an opportunity for some questions um, if I see any in the audience um, there'll be a fleet person with a microphone coming towards you please wait until you uh, find that microphone before you ask your question do I see any questions this caused no curiosity on anyone's <laughs> part <apparently. laughs> if you don't I, I'm ready to go but I, there's, a one, there's one in the front row here thank you You can just, you're so close. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so wondering what uh, you find presenting your poems to a live audience, what opportunities uh, that affords you that you wouldn't be able to normally um, uh, use when publishing poems. Like, what do you, do you use well, different poems or what it was? Yeah, like? well, when you're writing alone, you don't hear people applauding, for one thing. <laughs> um, so it, it, it takes some of the inherent loneliness out of composition. Um, but there's a big difference. I mean, when I'm, I'm writing, you know, I think of the poems as very private communications. Um, I'm usually writing alone in a room in semi-silence, uh, and I'm or with, or I'm chopping parsley, listening to Art Blakey. But and I'm thinking not of one particular person, but I'm thinking of a reader, uh, male, female, whatever. It's not really pictured that specifically in a room open with the book open reading in silence so I want I really want um, uh, it, it might seem strange because when I give public readings I tend to uh, read poems that are a little more amusing and maybe entertaining even but I want the poem to be a kind of very private and even intimate uh, exchange so there's actually a kind of a, a felt gap between uh, composing and because I've never when I'm composing, I'm never thinking of the podium or the microphone or the audience. I'm really thinking of uh, this room I'm writing in and it's going to be delivered somehow to a silent room of someone else's somewhere. Thank you. There's one next to it. This is our curious <laughs> yeah. You mentioned uh, Blakey and Monk. I'm also a great fan of jazz. Jazz for me came first and poetry after. It seems like there's a really interesting relationship between the two. Uh, most of my friends that like one like the other. Yeah. Uh, one, one always comes first, but they end up liking both. Do you have any theories as to why, why that is? I think it's just a bunch of oddballs, probably, <laughs> that, uh, that like both. Um, I don't know. I, th I, think the, the, uh, I think the analogy breaks down pretty quickly uh, because, I mean, jazz is, is based completely on improvisation. And while, you know, poets might want to sound spontaneous and uh, 
you know, as Yates said, all I got it probably get it wrong, but uh, all our stitching and unstitching has been for naught if it does not seem a moment's thought. I think it goes the other way around. So all our laboring and working and revision is trying to achieve spontaneity. But basically, I mean, I, I could sum this up by saying there's no eraser on a saxophone. You know, when you were up, when a saxophonist is up there, or a saxophonist, as some people say, um, is up there, it's pure improvisation. Um, so I don't, th I don't think, th I, I just write about jazz because it's, it's around. You know, it's, it's like I write about the weather, I write about dogs, I write about a 17 year old girl, and jazz is just kind of part of my experience. And basically, I think we're all, all poets are looking for new metaphors, we're just looking for new. Uh, points of insertion into these a small a handful of subject matters. So. I meant to say that you're cool, not oddballs. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the, the cool guys like this stuff. Yeah. Thank you. This one here? I read an interview that you did in Paris Review, and I, I can't remember what the date was. It was quite a while ago. Um, but you mentioned Patrick Kavanagh in that yeah. interview, and, you, and also again this evening. So I wonder if you had any thoughts on um, you know his influence upon you, and um, do you still like him? Well, Kav yeah, Kavanaugh was uh, for me. I mean, I'm kind of ex as an American, I'm external to the wonders of uh, of Irish poetry, but I've taught it and studied it. And I don't know, Patrick uh, Kavanaugh came along as a kind of counterweight to Yeats, um, as uh, <clears throat> as agrarian and uh, grounded and down to earth. And um, I, I, I just thought I, I, he was sort of a refreshing bit of real of uh, of everyday realism. Um, so I, I I still enjoy him. I think maybe in the Paris Review I um, I don't know I, one of the thing one thing he said that's uh, I like when we're talking about humor and poetry. Uh, Kavanaugh said that he thought uh, tragedy was just underdeveloped comedy. That uh, like you know if you if King Lear was extended to like twenty five acts, that at some point it would be funny, and, you know in some kind of Samuel Beckett sense of humor, but so yeah I think he's a terrific poet. Thank you. I, I wonder what your approach to subject is, whether it finds you or whether you find it, and whether the humor changes that, whether you whether that that added to the mix makes it different. Well, I think. Um, I think. I mean, Seamus Heaney said, "I'm not a, <clears throat> I'm not a poet all the time. I'm a poet some hours of the day, and other, the rest of the time I'm just walking around and a regular fellow." Um, but I think after you write for a while, whether it's poetry or anything else, you're a little um, you re you acquire a vigilance of some kind. You're a little bit on the lookout for a good metaphor, um, something or a sentence, and you might be reading, uh, you know, a book on on elephants or something, and uh, a sentence might snag your attention. And I think you develop an instinct for potential. You see, well, you could, I could spin that into a poem, and then, <clears throat> then it's sort of game on. But I, I've never really sat down with a piece of paper blank and, and just kind of tried to fret some poem out. I, if I sit down, as they say, to write, I'm always, I bring something to the page. I always have something with me that's you know, I've written down a notebook or something like that. But as I said, there are just a few subject matters, and we're all looking for different uh, metaphors to approach them.
Yeah. Um, it's you. It's, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> You have so many books out, and you know over the last however many years, and I'm as old as Cheerios, though. I mean, <laughs> it takes a well, while. Cheerios doesn't have any books on you, so <laughs> right, okay. you got an edge there. That's one thing. Uh, but <laughs> uh, artists tend to say that different works of art come from different periods of their lives, and when they identify as different kinds of people, uh, who do you see yourself? in this book, An Aimless Love versus Picnic Lightning or Sailing Alone Around the Room? Oh, uh, well, thank you for uh, dropping all these title names. Uh, well, I don't know. I think I've held on. I mean, I think the, the if you look at my, I'm not aware of it as much as readers are, I think, but I, I think there's some tonal modulation that takes place. I mean, as one gets older, there's a little, you know, the shadow of mortality is lengthened and, uh, there's a kind of uh, uh, somberness that leaks in or gets more play. But I think there's a consistency, too. I mean, you know, if you're uh, a novelist or a dramatist, uh, you basically part of your life's work is the uh, invention and development of characters. So in the case of someone like Dickens or Trollope or Balzac, I mean, there's just hundreds of characters uh, you lead, you, you've created. Usually for a poet, you need to create one character and you're done for life. And that character is usually called a persona, a way of speaking, a mode, a sensibility, <clears throat> and a, a linguistic adjustment or whatever. But it's the way... So, if, I mean, if you pick up Patrick Kavanaugh, he tends to sound like Patrick Kavanaugh. And uh, if you flip open Emily Dickinson, well, she's in, you know unmistakably Emily Dickens. She's singing that same little song. So I think at some point I did uh, come up with this persona uh, and the persona once I started thinking about it seemed to be drawn out of uh, English romantic poetry. Um, the image of the dawdler, the, the guy who wanders through a countryside, sits on a wayside bench, falls into a speculation, has no job, um, uh, and no domestic responsibilities. So it's a kind of modernization um, of, of that character who just seems very interested in his own speculations. And that, I, th I think, is fairly consistent book to book. But thank you for asking. Very there's interesting. One that, I'm sorry, there's only time for one more question, and I think oh, the microphone I get the last is already one. there. Oh. Make it a good one. Have I stolen it unduly? Should I pass it on to someone else? Me. Go. Oh, happy days. Um, pleasure to hear you read, Billy. Thank um, you. Sorry to ask a question about another poet, but what you said about um, the poem as a form of conversation, quite an intimate conversation, put me in mind of Frank O'Hara, and I think of you as occupying a sort of shared private space in American poetry. Yeah. Are you fond of his work? Do you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Fr Frank O'Hara was the poet mentioned. Yes. Um, Frank O'Hara, um, uh, I think, influenced a lot of poets in that he, um, he brought the everyday into a kind of new level of respectability. Uh, just um, these, <clears throat> these kind of, I did that, I did this poem, so I'm, I got a sandwich. And, and actually, um, not I got a sandwich, but I had a sandwich with uh, my friend Ted, or Alan and I got on the train together. And this kind of everydayness where you um, really uh, unedited... Uh, 
I think that gave uh, you know the different kinds of influence, and one kind of influence is is based on the issuance of uh, permission slips. You know, you can now write about that. I remember reading a poem by by Tom Gunn when I was in high school, and it was called Elvis Presley. Well, I, w I was shocked. I didn't know you could write about stuff like Elvis Presley, and uh, but it, you know, a door opened. Or um, I think a lot of people read Sharon Knowles, and they thought, I didn't know you could talk about your parents like that. Um, and uh, and with O'Hara, I think said you can loosen poetry up like that. I don't think you want to go too far beyond that in terms of looseness. Um, um, but surely uh, he is a kind of creator of a certain conversational style that's, uh, so he's very important, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you very, I want to thank them too. Thank you so much for being a great audience. Uh, uh, I, I feel your appreciation and I appreciate it. Thank you. get out first before you go <laughs> and then he can sit on the chair I referred to, to Billy's volume The Trouble with Poetry and in that poem he decides that the trouble is it makes him want to write more but if that troubles him it only delights us so we say more and encore and thank Great. you so much thank Billy More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.